Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And in verse 18 we read, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. By the way, hear your word preached. We pray that we may hear it, that will come to us, that we may get a message from it, that we may understand the point that we ask Maybe we should have been more active when we were younger. But this morning we would be reminded. We pray that uh, the word will fall on our heart. We may hear it and we may grow closer to you in this process. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Message, the title this morning of the message is Fishers of Men. And if we take a look at history and specifically with people who are converted to Christianity, we can look back on life and we can see what are known as providential pivot points. So what I mean by providential pivot points is they're key moments in a person's life where the Lord takes a hold of them, takes a hold of their life. And from that point forward, their life isn't the same. So if we look back at church history, we can take a look at Augustine and his conversion when he picked up the book and read. Read, and I think it was Romans, I believe it was chapter either 11 or 14. The verse that he read that completely transformed his life. And what ended up happening is at that time, when he started writing his confessions and the books that he wrote, nobody up until that point wrote like Augustine did. We still go back and read what he did and benefit a lot from his writings. Another providential pivot point, we can see Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the wall and everything that followed from that point forward, the Protestant Reformation, the five solas, everything that we have, the confessions, the churches, the movement that sprang from that specific point. And one more from church history, if we take a look at Constantine and his supposed conversion at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, what happened after that point is the persecution of Christianity stopped, Christianity became legalized, and at the end of the 4th century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So these key points in life, now let's focus on our lives this morning, the providential pivot points in our life, the person whom the Lord may have used to witness to you to hear the gospel when you believed, or the family that you were born into that raised you in the church to hear the gospel that you believed, the moment that you experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit, the light came on, it became real, transformed your entire life from that point forward. So the providential pivot points that we see are the times when God effectually calls us to himself. That pivot point then 
rewrites, not specifically rewrites, but transforms everything that we had thought we were going to do for the rest of our lives. So we lay all of our plans, all of our desires, everything that we wanted to do to the side, and we turn and we follow the Lord. There was no way of knowing at that time that you believed, nor was there any way of knowing when Augustine or Constantine or what Luther did at that time, how the Lord was going to use that and the influence he was going to have with that on other believers' lives. So the context that we have here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we see the temptation of Christ. Pretty intense scenario. Following that, from verses 12 to 17, we see Jesus reading from Isaiah, talking about the darkness and that people should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So following this, these two intense narratives, we're now going to see in this third section here that we are with the fishes of men, we would think, okay, this is going to continue. And it does, but it's not flashy. Jesus walks up to these individuals, calls them to himself, but it's not like what we see in Exodus where the Red Sea parts. Or it's not like we're seeing fire and brimstone coming down from heaven or how Jesus was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. No signs were given. This was purely internal. Nothing from heaven, no voice from heaven came, but it was purely internal in the hearts of the individual. This is a key specific point in these people's lives, but it's ordinary and it was personal. So we see business as usual. Now with these fishermen, it was just an average day like the thousands before it. Maybe if you can remember when you were converted, day was, you know, business as usual, and all of a sudden it clicked. We all have different testimonies, but the point here this morning to see as they were just in their average profession, in their average job, doing their daily business, and the Lord came and grabbed a hold of them and transformed their entire lives. So the same is true for you and us, and it's easy to lose focus on the significance of our conversion. 10, 15 years later, we can look back and see that everything has, that the Lord has done. We can become so used to church, getting so used to the routine, the prayers, the sermons, that it just becomes second nature. We don't even think about it anymore. But the radical significance of our conversion, the Lord actually taking a hold of our hearts, transforming who we are, living a life that is pleasing to him, because outside of Christ, life is completely different. So what we're seeing here in our first point this morning is the honor of the call but let's take a look here at the analogy, fishers of men. So Jesus is using terminology which the disciples can relate with since they were fishermen. Now if we think of fish, their natural habitat, their natural environment is the water. Within the water, what do they do? They travel in schools. They all act alike. They swim the same way. They swim in the same direction. They do the same thing. I remember in youth group growing up at the church I attended, there was a poster on the wall, and it all, had all of these, it was a drawing, and it had all these big fish, sharp teeth, multicolored. They were all swimming one way, and then on the other side there was this little fish, plain white, no colors, scared looking, swimming the other way. So if you can think of the analogy fishers of men, these big fish and the little fish swimming in opposite directions. That always struck me when I would look at that. So they travel in schools for the first one. The second thing they do is they follow the current. They go with the flow. They follow of the current of the river. So if we think of those who are unconverted, what the scripture teaches is they walk according to their own lusts, according to the course of this world. 
The third thing fish do is they take the bait. Hook, line, and sinker. Now, if you were as bad as a fisherman as I am, when the bobber goes down, I'm not necessarily the quickest to set the hook. I don't probably be not paying attention and doing something else. So then I realize the bobber's down and I grab it and I reel it in. The longer you let the fish on the hook, they have the tendency to swallow it. They just don't eat the worm. They take the whole thing and they end up swallowing the hook. Same thing for those who walk according to the course of this world, who are unconverted. They are carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They swallow false doctrine, hook, line, and sinker. Why do they do this? Because it's according to the lusts of their own appetite. Same thing for the fish. He's hungry. He wants that whole thing. Same type of analogy. So what needs to happen is, being fishers of men, individuals need to be delivered out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. This is why we get the term or the analogy, fishers of men. Now the source for our desire, where does it come from? Why do we evangelize? Where do we get this ambition from? Interestingly enough, studying church history the first century, one of the main differences in the characteristics between the Jews and the Christians in the first century, according to the Romans, was the Christians were out evangelizing all of the pagans in their known area where the Jews would always kind of be huddled in. They weren't evangelical-focused, but the Christians were. That's why the gospel spread from Israel all out to the known world at that time. We were evangelizing the people. So now notice, though, here in the verse, it's the Lord who calls the disciples, and not the disciples who sought after the Lord. Verse 19, Jesus says, follow me. It's a command of exhortation. Jesus is exhorting the disciples to come here, come on, follow me. We cannot begin to comprehend the honor of this call that the God of the universe would take on a human nature, become man, and call us to serve him in his kingdom. To think that before the foundation of the world, the Lord had already picked you and I to do this, to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, the honor in this. Also, the great responsibility that we have in this call of sharing the gospel to other people. Whereas John in Revelation 1, 17, when he saw Jesus, he fell at Christ's feet as if he was dead. The honor, the awe, the respect, the responsibility of this call. So the motivation the believer has to follow Christ comes from God's grace alone. So when a person is given the Holy Spirit, they're transformed from within. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ezekiel 36, 25 states, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So the source of our desire is of the Lord. This is not of our own doing. This does not originate in our own hearts. If it were up to us, apart from the Lord, if it was just up to us, like the fish in the water, we would all be swimming to the current of this world. So the ministerial authority rests in the sovereign hand of the Lord. Philippians 2.13 says, It is the Lord who works in us, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. So we follow out of weakness is the second point here. It must be kept in mind that no person is qualified for this job. How many of you can remember a time when you were witnessing or there was an opportunity 
to witness to a person, to share the gospel with them. But we didn't want to rock the boat, so we didn't say anything. Or we were afraid of what other people in the area might think of us. Our dignity was kind of on the line. We were concerned that maybe this would anger the person. We have a a good relationship with them. We don't really want to disturb what's going on. Or maybe they were a boss or a person in authority, so you didn't want to jump the chain of command and say anything to the individual. So if we break this down and we boil it down to brass tacks, what these are are just excuses. We were scared. Evangelism is to be done with a humble and a broken heart. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, The Lord says, My strength, or power, is made perfect in weakness. So the Lord's strength is made perfect in our weakness. We have nothing to offer. We have no natural gifts or ability of our own to bring forth in this task. It is not as if the Lord looked down upon us, saw something that he liked in us, and said, oh, this guy could do this, this person can do that. I'll use what he naturally has. No, all of these gifts that we have in evangelism come from the Lord himself. Now, if we take the example of Jeremiah, I'll read this to you this morning. Jeremiah chapter 1 is interesting. God has already foreordained Jeremiah's ministry. And in verse, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So we can see how the Lord works. It is the Lord's desire, the Lord's enabling, and the Lord's planning that we are stepping into as Christians. This was the Lord's plan from the beginning from Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah, on the second point here, understood his own weakness. He was scared. He was insecure. He was looking at the task that God had given him, and he was thinking about, how am I going to do this out of my own power? How am I going to do this out of my own ability? I, don't, I lack the qualifications that are necessary to complete this task. And in verse 6, Jeremiah says, And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So Jeremiah has an honest assessment of himself. He sees himself as weak. But the Lord does not allow our weakness to get in the way of what he wants to accomplish. Rather, it's through our weakness that the Lord empowers us. He gives us, he gifts us, he gives us the ability through our weakness to complete this task. That way, all glory belongs to God. We can't take credit for any of it. So the third point here with Jeremiah is the Lord reassures him by comforting him, by explaining to him his sovereignty. And in verse 7 he says, But the Lord said unto me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whoever so I command you, you shall speak. So our responsibility is to simply be obedient to what the Lord has us to do. The results will be in the hand of the Lord. It doesn't rest within us. Jeremiah now had a reason to feel secure. You and I have a reason as believers to feel secure in God's sovereignty, in God's power, with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to actualize what he has commanded us to do in spite of our shortcomings. Notice what God doesn't tell Jeremiah. He doesn't give him a detailed list of everything he's going to do. He just says he's going to be there, he's going to enable him, and he's going to do this. God formed Jeremiah in the womb. He revealed to Jeremiah his will. He set him apart. He called him to ministry. He did all of the work. 
The same for us as well. The Lord's command to Jeremiah is this. Stop being afraid. Stop looking at things through your own limited abilities. Yes, we are to recognize our weaknesses. Yes, we are to be humble. Yes, we are to be broken, but we don't stop there. This is only half the battle. The void that exists, that lack of ability that we have, is what the Lord supplies through our growing in grace, through our sanctification, through that transformed heart. He enables us. He gives us the ability. He gives us the desire. He ordains the circumstances for us to follow in. So point number two this morning, take a look at the nature of the call, the response of the disciples. So when Jesus came up and said to them, follow me, how did the disciples react? Look at verse 20. It says, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 22 again, immediately left their boats and their father and followed him. So one of the main goals of John Calvin during his life was two things. First thing he wanted to do was to be prompt in his service to the Lord. And the second thing he wanted to do was to be sincere. Prompt, meaning immediate, acting, without delay. Sincere, meaning genuine, honest, trustworthy. So I think if we were to relate to these two things, sincerity and promptness, we would more tend towards the side of sincerity. We tend towards the side of, yeah, I I have it in my heart. I have this desire. I really am sincere in my walk with the Lord. We would resonate with that. But how well would we resonate with the promptness of the call? Are we as prompt on the Lord's day both mornings and evenings, as we are in our weekly responsibilities at our job? Do we put more prompt, more of an eagerness, more of a passion in our nine-to-five jobs than we do in our service to the Lord on his day? How about when we hear somebody dishonor the name of the Lord, taking the Lord's name in vain? How quick are we to correct that person? It doesn't have to be in public. You can pull him aside and say, explain him to it then. But how quick are we to defend God's honor every time we hear it broken, every time we hear somebody blaspheme his name? Or do we rather just keep the peace? Maybe we'll say something to him or her on a later time, but we're just not going to do that right now. Or how about in our daily prayers? Are we as prompt in our daily prayers to get on our knees before the Lord as we are to watch our favorite television shows or to act in our favorite type of recreational activities. So we have the sincerity. We have the desire. The Lord put it there. But what about the promptness? Are we immediate like the disciples were? We may sincerely desire to do all these things, but fail to act upon these promptly with the intention of just putting it off for later. We fail to recognize, though, that our relationship with the Lord comes through obedience, and this is first and foremost in our lives. Going back to the honor of this call, if we really truly break down the honor it is for the Lord to have called us into this life, the honor of God's calling in our life in thinking about the plan of redemption, purchasing us out of the slave market of sin and redeeming us into his kingdom. If we really truly sit and meditate upon that, I think that would really motivate our promptness. We'd be more prompt in the things of the Lord and less on the things of the world. What he is to be receiving is the first fruits of our labors, not 
the leftovers. So to the unbeliever, because a lot of this this morning has been to believers, what if I'm not a Christian? How does this apply to me? For the individual who has not yet believed in Christ, the immediate call of repentance is to you as well. Hebrews 3.15 states this, Today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. This is an immediate call to repentance right here in this moment right now. Now, we don't want to just simply think we've said a prayer and we're good. We don't want to simply think that we went to church and God's going to count that as credit towards our righteousness. What he's calling us to do is cast ourselves entirely at his feet, completely humble with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So if we think about it this morning, if you're hearing the gospel for the first time, or if you've been thinking over these things in the past couple months, this may be a providential pivot point for you as well. Just like Martin Luther, just like Augustine, just like possibly with Constantine, where you devote your entire life to Christ, enter into his kingdom, receive the Holy Spirit, and start doing the Lord's work as well. To delay, to procrastinate in his call is very dangerous. The longer one delays, the more difficult this becomes. We don't want to be like the soil where the seed was planted that didn't take root. You heard the message this morning. The seed is in the soil, and then the birds of the air came and plucked it away. We don't want that example to be for you. The time to act is now. The immediacy of this call is right now. Number three, the third point this morning, the method of the call. It's definitely no easy task. How many of us at one time or not were fearful of the consequences of evangelism? The fear of rejection, the fear of ridicule, the fear of being laughed at, possibly losing your job, possibly being imprisoned, or even death. Now, we don't experience that so much here in the States, but overseas, if you're missionaries, you may have. We have, may have struggled with what to say. We may have struggled with how do I say it. The individual that we're burning to, to share the gospel with may be very stoic, very difficult to find common ground with. What do I say to this person without offending them? Or maybe at times we've been overzealous. <laughs> we've been too much. We put too much on a person at first, and we kind of pushed them away from hearing the word. So the best way, I think, to evangelize a person is naturally and sincerely out of love for Christ and out of love for the neighbor. If you were to have a discussion about your, you know, your favorite vehicle or your favorite hobby, you would talk in a very normal tone. You'd talk in very real terms. You wouldn't hold anything back. You'd actually be very passionate about what you're discussing. The same thing about Christ. Just having a natural conversation with somebody. It's not the craftiness of our words. It's not the tense theological vocabulary that we can come up with when sharing the gospel to somebody else. It's just naturally speaking the love of Christ that's in our hearts to the individual and allowing the Holy Spirit then to do his job by taking that and working on the heart of the unbeliever. An example of this is um, when I was five years old, Mom, my father would come and pick me up every other weekend because my parents were divorced. And I had a five-year-old understanding of my dad. But every time I would talk about my dad, because, you know, distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? I hadn't seen him for two weeks. I would <laughs> tell everybody in the world how great my dad was, how much I loved my dad. Now, I had a five-year-old understanding of him. I, you know, how much a five-year-old knows. 
But I had no problem at all going up to my teacher, going up to my friends, going up to everybody and just telling them how great my dad was. I love my dad. He's going to take me this week and we're going to go do this. We're going to go do that. You know, just had that passion, that joy. That is what we should bring to the forefront on our evangelism. Not so much the technical terminology or the how-to, but just that genuine love that the Lord has put in our hearts, that genuine honor, that respect, that awe we have for the Lord, bringing that out of our hearts as we evangelize. That, I believe, is the key to evangelism. Now, another example for evangelism, I don't know if anybody in here are familiar with um, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, I think she, she wrote a book, um, every, I can't think of the title off the top of my head, Every House Has a House Key or something along those lines, talking about hospitality and fellowship. Rosaria Butterfield is an interesting testimony, and you can YouTube her. She lectures at universities. She's a former college professor, I believe, at Ohio State. She was an LGBT activist. She was involved in a, a same-sex relationship. And at the time, Rosaria, when she speaks about it looking back, at the time, she had absolutely no understanding. She had no struggle with her lifestyle at all. It was to a point where um, a Presbyterian pastor named Ken Smith came up to her one day and, and invited her over to his house for dinner. When she came over, things were very natural. And she says, there's two things he didn't do. He didn't share the gospel with me, and he didn't invite me to church. Now, there's going to be times where we have maybe five or ten minutes, and both of these are necessary. So this isn't a blueprint for evangelism. This is a blueprint for patient evangelism. So when this pastor invited her over to his house with his wife, it was a natural relationship. Let me get to know you. What do you like? What don't you like? Who are you? What are your interests? Those types of things. Building that relationship. So as this continued, he didn't treat her like a project. He didn't treat her like a goal. He was willing to develop this long-term relationship with her. Interestingly enough, Pastor Smith waited before he shared the specifics of her lifestyle before he shared the specifics of where the, what the gospel says and how her lifestyle was. That wasn't the main point. Those were symptoms of the problem. The main problem in every unbeliever's life is simply that, unbelief. The particulars of the sin are secondary. What she didn't understand was who God was, who Christ is, what is the Bible, what is original sin. He didn't go right for her sin. He backed up and gave her the complete Christian worldview. After the Christian worldview was established, then he got into the specifics of original sin, total depravity, the hardness of the human heart, being spiritually dead. Then you're able to build that bridge into an individual's lifestyle and say, this is why the Bible says this is the right way to live. This is why the Bible says this is a sin. It's not that you just walk up to him right away and boom, you hit him with it, but you slowly, patiently, through prayer, Develop a real relationship with somebody. Explain the entire Christian worldview to them. It doesn't have to be technical. We're just giving a basis, basic overview. And as they understand each key point, what they end up doing is it creates that, it saturates that in their mind, and now there is a reason behind why we do what we do. It's just not this is our religion, and somebody else has another religion, and this is just what I believe, and somebody else believes differently. This is a complete and total worldview, an entire system. And that's what Pastor Ken Smith did with her. And over time, she began to hear these things, and the Lord worked on her, and she eventually became a believer. 
And now you can look her up. There's a lot of, um, of footage of her on YouTube explaining the LGBT lifestyle back to the university. And now she's able to, because she, you know, she's got both sets of glasses. She's lived both different lives. She's really able to articulate to the LGBT community what it is to be a Christian and why there's differences between the two. Lastly, this morning, I wanted to cover the urgency of evangelism. Luke 13, 3 says this, Except you repent, you shall likewise perish. God will hold us accountable to every single sin that we commit if we die in unbelief. What holds us back? In today's culture, I think what primarily holds us back as believers is we don't want to offend. We're in a very sensitive, a very emotionally driven culture. And to challenge somebody's worldview in today's culture is deemed as very offensive. There's a natural tendency for us to like to be accepted. There's a natural tendency for us to keep the peace. We desire to be in good relationships with people. We don't want to rock the boat. We want to save our dignity. We don't want to be labeled as that weird guy or that weird woman over there. We just want to blend in. And as Calvinists, it's easy for us to think, well, you know, God's sovereign. He can work. I'll just stay in the background. Maybe he'll use somebody else. Maybe there will be another means. It's easy for us to compromise and, and play that sovereignty card and think, well, the Lord will find a way. I'll just you know, stay over here. No, the Lord uses the means through us, through his believers, to bring believers to Christ. We are required, we are commanded to share the gospel to people. There's never a time where it's inconvenient to do this, and we're seeing this now. The time is now, the urgency is now. I'm just finishing this morning on an example of mine. When I was doing um, chaplaincy up at the jail, there was a person I was meeting with on a regular basis who was struggling. He, was, he got into um, this very evil, demonic, um, heavy metal type music, and it was oppressing him. And he called for a chaplain. And I met him one day, and he wanted to meet again, so I met him another day. And we kind of started meeting quite a bit, probably about two times a week. And each time I would go in to meet with him in the jail, his countenance was just you know, like he was being oppressed terribly. But then when we'd um, share some scripture, do some prayer, boy, when, you, when I would leave, he would just be so uplifted that he was a completely different person. I'd go back again and meet him, and the same thing would happen. This cycle continued for about two months. He was about to get out. He about had about a, a month, month and a half left. He was about to get out. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to see him a lot on the outside because he's about to get out. So I started spending time with other people. Well, that was a mistake because what ended up happening is he did get out. And I was supposed to meet with him that following Sunday. So I give his house a call and his mom picks up. And I say, is, is, is Jesse there? And there was a long pause. And then she started to cry. I'm like, oh, he probably offended he's back in jail she says he's dead he overdosed he was in jail for a year and a half his system was clean he went back out and started using again his system couldn't handle it and he died and i said i said i'm very very sorry and if you need anything just give me a call but the urgency of the call and the urgency of evangelism the seriousness of right now here and now tomorrow is no guarantee I thought I would have had all the time in the world because Jesse was my age and he ain't going anywhere. He'll be out and we'll, we'll get together. Where there was that month and a half where I could have still spent with him two times a week sharing the gospel with him. But instead I kind of made a little compromise thinking, well, a month and a half later, well, 
month and a half later came and there were no more days for him. So the urgency of the call is right now. It's not that we're to be overzealous and push people too far back, but the seriousness of the call and the seriousness of what's at stake. Conclude with this this morning, John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Evangelism is not a game where we see how many people we can convert or how many people we can beat in a debate. Rather, it's simply demonstrating the love of Christ to everyone that we encounter. It's not meant to be complex. It's not meant to be difficult. Rather, it should be natural, genuine, patient, and Christ-centered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. The honor it is, Lord, to be called into your kingdom and to be your representative, to be your ambassador here on earth. We pray, Lord, that we understand this responsibility, the understanding of what's at stake, the urgency of the time being right now. Lord, that we do this out of a pure heart with pure motives, naturally, Lord, flowing from the love that we have of you, even though we just may have a little bit of understanding even though we may not have the words to speak or the right things to say, just to simply demonstrate your love that you supernaturally place in our hearts. We thank you for this this morning, asking all of this in your son's name. Amen.